Daniels, and you're listening to Antimony. Episode 13, Clover and Stone. with a start as the plane fell, bounced, rose, dipped, jerked right, slid left, bounced again. Turbulence. Delani had turned cactus color. She held one of those little white paper bags stashed in our seat pockets below her chin. Just turbulence. Greetings, young people. We have started our descent and will be landing short. The plane dropped again. So did my stomach. The wind over the Orkneys is always a factor in our landing. Have no worries. We have a very capable captain. Out the window, I saw flat land that was moss green and storm cloud gray. The plane lurched sideways, and my view suddenly included a stretch of steel blue water with white caps. The only Orkneys I had heard of were the Orkney Islands in the north of Scotland, Surely there were no skyscrapers there. The plane jolted back to horizontal. I breathed deeply as we approached a landing strip at what appeared to be a normal angle. The thrill ride was almost over. We came to a surprisingly smooth landing, and a collective cheer went up. The wind outside howled, and the plane listed from side to side as we taxied to a stop. Heavy clouds sailed by overhead. Ms. Agurus gave us each a navy blue slicker and rain pants marked with the GYSP logo in white on the jacket front and across the back. The identification would come in handy if we got blown out to sea or someone had to identify our bodies. I imagined a person with a long hook hauling to shore a bloated corpse and saying in a thick Scottish brogue, Aye, another one marked GYSP. Two forest green Land Rovers rolled up to meet our jets. Ms. Arguros told us to leave our bags on the plane. This will not be a long visit, but it will be fascinating, especially for some of you. I thought she looked in my direction, but if she did... It was probably because I looked like a giant blueberry in my rain suit. I glanced over at Aranka. She had managed to tie hers at the waist somehow, so it resembled a charming sailor's outfit. We climbed into the vehicles and drove away from the landing strip and onto a single-track road marked Ring of Brodgar. Even from a distance, I could see what we were aiming for, It wasn't a skyscraper, but if our tour started with something ancient, this would be it, and it definitely qualified as something reaching skyward. On a grassy green plateau, a circle of standing stones, each about 12 feet tall, jutted into the sky. 
The stones were thin rectangles, though many of the tops looked broken off, like damaged teeth. The circle was immense, three hundred feet or more across. The stones looked like an immense color wheel in the spectrum of gray. This circle would be a giant's array of paint chips, porpoise fin, cinder, dove in flight, morning fog, city sidewalk, gull wing, steel wool. The stones stood out against the equally variegated charcoals, lead, and ash grays of the clouds overhead. I had no idea gray came in so many shades. We got out of our Land Rovers at a gravel path, screen door gray, that led to the ring of stones. We had the place to ourselves. The wind flapped our rain jackets and pants, and I felt like an enormous navy blue and white flag. I wondered what I would mean in semaphore if I lifted my arms to the sky. I tried it. If the giant choosing amongst pink colors saw me, was I signaling wonder or distress? Aranka stared at me, baffled, I'm sure, by what I was doing. A gust of wind actually propelled me forward a step. Dr. Kaleo led our procession of blue flags to the standing stones and motioned for us all to keep up. The path crossed an earthen bridge over a deep ditch hewn from the rock beneath us. Almost ten feet deep and twenty feet across, the ditch encircled the stones. I looked down as we crossed the bridge and saw a trickle of water meandering along the bottom. If the ditch were full, it would have kept anyone frightened of water out of the circle. Although anyone who didn't like water wouldn't feel at home anywhere on this island. On two sides of us were lakes, the locks of Here and Stennis, and we weren't far from the sea. I looked around and tried to take in the whole vista. Stone, earth, water, sky, land, sea, paper, scissors, rock. Which would win if the elements went to war? Today my money was on rock. Even a puff of this wind would blow paper away. Scissors would rust in the misty air. These rocks had persevered a long time. But who had placed them here and why? We stepped into the circle and Dr. Cleo gathered us close. The grass in the middle of the circle was dotted with fragrant buttercups and clover. I also smelled the same petrichor scent my votive emitted on our first day of classes. Odd, since that smell usually comes from before it rains on dry stones, and this terrain certainly wasn't dry. The tall stones we were standing near blocked some of the wind. Our jackets quieted to a flutter, and Dr. Kaleo spoke. Come closer. Listen. As the wind blew in between the stones, its pitch changed. First, higher. Another gust of wind came through, but from a slightly different direction, and another note sounded lower. The wind was strong, and the notes were faint. I wasn't sure I was really hearing anything. I looked at Josh. Could he hear it? 
He nodded, anticipating my question. You are no doubt familiar with Stonehenge and Amesbury? The Ring of Brodgar here is at least as old, built around 2500 to 2000 BCE. The word henge actually refers to the ring around it, the ditch, not the stones. The henge here was most likely constructed before the stones were put into place. Many theories exist about the ring's construction. It may have been a temple or part of a temple complex. The nearby village of Scarabray, also from the Neolithic period, may once have been inhabited by a group of priests or magi who came here to communicate with the heavens. Acoustics may have had something to do with the ring's original purpose. Like it was a giant prehistoric stone flute. Perhaps. Originally, more stones stood here, 60, instead of the current 26. The full complement of stones would not have entirely closed off the circle, but it would have made it sound very different inside from outside. I count 27 stones. Dr. Kaleo's head jerked toward Josh. Her eyes were wide open, as if he had caught her in a lie. She smoothed the scarf at her throat. Oh, yes. You are correct. Twenty-seven, yes. Maybe it was just a giant circular wind block. A good place to rest in a gale. Perhaps. But would you go to such extremes to build a shelter from the wind when a simple hut would do? I looked around. Most of the stones were gray, but one appeared more beige than the others. I would have named it Ostrich Plume if someone asked me, or Ziggurat. Most of the stones came from a local quarry, about five miles away. Since each one weighs approximately two tons, the effort involved in moving them would be substantial. But they're not all from the same place. You are noticing the pale one over there. Yes, that one especially has puzzled many people, including archaeocoustologists, those who study sound in ancient places. I doubt they ran out of local stone. It's so rocky here. Maybe it makes a different sound than the others, if you strike it or speak into it or the wind whistles past it. Perhaps? Finton? What happened to the other stones? The missing ones? Who would take a stone from this place? Two mysteries, then. The mystery of the foreign stone and the mystery of the missing stones. Perhaps one of you will figure it out and solve an ancient puzzle. You have an hour to explore. Meet back at the Land Rovers at three o'clock exactly. Josh, Neith, Zia, and I wandered toward the beige stone. This area would have been pretty remote until not that long ago. I wonder how long people other than the locals even knew about this circle. Zia was eyeing the circle. So, do you want to sing? I am curious about the sound in here. She opened her mouth, but I could hardly hear her above the wind. She stopped and shook her head. So this wasn't like the dome in St. Hildegard's church. Josh's eyes suddenly lit up. He took his votive out of his pocket and held it next to his ear. His votive was in the shape of a lion. Listening for its roar? That's the wind. He ignored me and pressed his ear to the beige stone. Then to his votive again. He looked at us. 
I doubt you'll be able to hear this, but my votive and this stone share exactly the same frequency. It's like they're humming very quietly and sounding the exact same note. The stones are very similar in color, too. I handed him mine. He listened. Nope. Different pitch. I'm going to stay here and look around a little more. Mind if I hold on to your little pig for now? Remember to give it back. Zia pointed at a grassy mound in the distance. Let's check that out. Neith and I headed off with her. The mound had a small entranceway. A sign to the right of the entrance explained that the mound, Meishou, was a burial chamber, although all the human remains had been removed long ago. Vikings had broken into the chamber in the mid-1100s and left some runic graffiti behind. I crouched down and crawled in. It was about four feet tall at its highest point and about ten feet in diameter. Enough light came in from the doorway for me to see. The interior was all precisely cut slabs, neatly fitted together. I turned around and stuck my head out. Come on in. We sat down in the middle of the stone floor. It was so quiet. All sound from outside was blocked. I settled into the silence, enjoying the absence of the wind. Zia got out a flashlight and shone it around. Amazing the precision with which people cut these stones. This place is over 5,000 years old and it's perfectly constructed. Hey, there's Viking graffiti. He pushed Zia's arm gently so her flashlight focused on one of the sidewalls. It was covered with scratches shaped like tree branches, crosses, and hooks. Runes, cool. What's it say? We stood up and went closer. Neith ran his fingers along the lines. Uh, It's a bunch of statements, uh, maybe unrelated to one another. Some of it just seems to be regular old graffiti. Uh, Ingegirth is the most beautiful of all women. Uh, Ingebjörg, the fair widow, was here with Erlinger. Great. We came all this way to see stuff I can see in the bathroom at school. Did they leave any phone numbers? Well, a couple inscriptions are more interesting. Uh, In the circle, a great treasure is hidden in plain sight. The one who returns this treasure to its home will gain great reward. And this, a hole is here that shows the blood. This was carved with Engelhydrenfrig. That shows the blood? Great treasure? That's what it says. Runes are pretty easy once you get the hang of them. But what does it mean? Dunno. We'd better go. You know Dr. Kaleo in time. We rode back to the airstrip, saying nothing. I wanted to talk about the ascription and anything else we may have found out during our free time, but I wasn't keen to bring anything up with our driver and Grigori professors within earshot. Better to wait until we were on the plane. This time, Aranka and Fintan were told to board the plane the professors were on. We boarded our jet, took off our rain gear, and settled in for whatever leg of our journey was next. The plane jerked and bounced as we gained altitude. I looked out the window and saw the stone circle grow smaller and smaller. 
I thought I saw a long white rectangle attached to a white square. A truck and a trailer? Move along the single track road that now looked like a smoke gray worm beneath us. If we had stayed the night, we would have seen the headlines the next day in the local paper. Beige monolith mysteriously vanishes from Broadgar Circle. Okay, spill. We huddled close on the plane. The steward was busy in the back, clearing up after our refreshments. Romani and Argurus were talking to the pilot. It seemed safe to discuss our findings. Rachel and Delani had gone to see the ruins of Scara Bray, the nearby village, during our free time. Josh had stayed in the circle. A sign was posted nearby indicating that it was rare for a henge. You know, the ditch, to have a stone circle inside of it. More often, there's just a ditch, or just a stone circle, not both, like here. Even Stonehenge is different. It has a ditch, but at a greater distance from the stones. At Broadgar, the ditch is definitely close to the stones, related to the stones. Maybe something at Broadgar made whoever built it think a huge ditch all the way around it would be a good idea. You mean someone dug the ditch to make sure whatever is inside of the ditch would be safe from whoever doesn't want to have to cross a ditch to get them? Would that really work? Would for me. I wouldn't want to swim or take my chances just to get closer to the stones. I would be happy to stay on the outside and look in. I'm glad the water's been drained or whatever made the ditch pretty much dry. Maybe it had something to do with the inscription we found. In the circle, a great treasure is hidden in plain sight. The one who returns this treasure to its home will gain great reward. And a hole is here that shows the blood. It gave the person's name who carved it. It's a mouthful. Engel Heidrenfrig. A great treasure is hidden in the circle in plain sight. I didn't see anything in the circle. Just the stones. Maybe the treasure is in the stones. Or is the stones. Or one of them. You saw how my votive and that beige one seem to have some connection. Oh, that reminds me. Can I have my votive back? Of course. In mint condition. What was that about showing blood? Apparently there's a hole that shows the blood. The ditch is a hole. But what does it show? It would show who is afraid to cross it. Who is afraid of water, I mean, besides me. Angels and demons can't live in water, so Nephilim wouldn't like it either. Maybe a ditch full of water would demonstrate the presence of Nephil blood and keep Nephilim out of the circle. But why? What's the treasure? If it's the stones or a stone, why would that be treasure and, and who would hide it? And from whom? And how would someone return it to get a great reward? I did notice one more thing. There was a divot in the beige stone. A hole? I suppose so. But the strange thing is, my votive fit into it. Not precisely. Not tightly. But the size was right. Like someone could have carved my votive from a piece of that stone. And when I stuck it in, I, I heard something. This will sound weird. 
but it sounded a little like a lion's roar. Did you find a stone my vote fit into? No. Nothing for your vote of there. Who was Engelheid Drunfreig? The Viking who wrote the inscription? I'm not sure, but her name means the one who has seen hidden angels. You know, we really should talk with Fenton and Aranka about all this stuff. Their lives may be in danger, too. Plus, maybe they know things that could help us. I was skeptical, not only because Aranka had been so close to Xanthi and both of them were close with Fenton, but also because at this very moment they were with our professors on the second plane in our little entourage. Who knows what they're talking about? Maybe they've been separated out to see what they know. Maybe to see what they know about what we know. We really should include them. They're in the same situation we are, and we should get all the help we can. But we need to make sure it's really help. Too late. Just before we boarded, Fenton and Aranka said they wanted to talk with us. They said they had information they thought we might find interesting. Ms. Romani was standing right there, so I couldn't ask them anything, but I told them we'd all get together at our next stop. Dear young people, you should all get a little sleep before our next adventure. I am now dimming the cabin lights. Josh, can I see your votive or hold it for a while? I just want to think about something. He shrugged and handed it over. I put it close to my nose and inhaled as deeply as I could. I wasn't sure what, if anything, would happen, and nothing did at first, except for my nostrils filling with the overwhelming sense of buttercup and clover pollen and ancient rock dust. The lights went out, and I fell into a deep sleep. I was standing in an open field, staring at a large tower, wide at the base and progressively narrower as it reached toward heaven. The top blocked the sun from view, just enough so I could see that the bricks of the building gleamed golden yellow. The yellow reminded me of sunflowers, brilliant yellow heads turning toward the sun. I could hear people laboring, calling out to one another in a language which I knew I couldn't speak and yet was somehow familiar. Two oxen strained in their yoke, pulling a heavy cart loaded with stone and brick. I could hear their grunts and the wheels of the cart squeal and moan against the rocky ground as they pulled, a man shouting at them in that same language. The sun was hot, and I felt deep gratitude, almost joy, to be standing in the shade provided by the tower. Or was my feeling of joy a result of hearing the sound of the unknown yet familiar language? Suddenly, darkness passed overhead, as if a huge bird was flying over and blocking the sun. The air became cool, and I could see the tower clearly without the glare of the sun, its stones the color of the odd one out in the stone circle at Brodgar, the one I had called Ziggurat. The shadow passed, and the sunlight resumed, burning hot and bright. Then another passing of the great winged bird. Was it a bird? It stopped atop the tower, its great wings unfurled, opalescent feathery surface glistening even with the sun behind it. A great hush fell, 
as the temperature dropped again. Someone in the crowd began to speak in a plaintive tone, then others joined in. I could almost make out their entreaty. Greetings, young people. Time to prepare for our descent. Our descent into what? We made two more stops on our way to Dubai. At both, we stayed on the planes. At both, a van pulled up to the jet the professors, Finton and Aranka, were on. Two men got out and loaded a wooden crate onto the plane, about the size of a refrigerator both times, then drove away. Finally, the pilot announced, Our next destination is... Dubai. Prepare for landing. (sighs) Okay, Babel. Show us what you've got. So, what happened in Dubai? Isn't that where the constellation that happened over the plains of Shinar way back in Bible times was supposed to happen again? Before I tell you about what happened, you need to listen to another dream. Okay, this one is marked 1866, Samya and Peerless at the Manor House. This is Nurse Barith. Dream Lab. Subject, Kaya Smith. Amnamnesis Experiment. Dream Prompt, Samya. Transmission starts in 5, 4, 3, 2... The time has come, and I am prepared. The peerless have assembled at the manor and await my arrival. I have already sent the specimens, the mummified Elu children, on ahead by courier. But these notes I copied in the monastery from Brother Joseph's notebook, I want to deliver those myself. With Brother Joseph's research detailing the possibility of recessive traits amongst the Iliad and the illness amongst the Nephilim, I now have everything I need to make my demands known to the peerless. All along, I have been keeping track of what the peerless sent me to obtain. I have not just mindlessly handed things over to them. They think I am nothing, a simple and simple-minded servant. But as I have increased their knowledge, I have also been building my own knowledge that guarantees they will meet my demands. I have read the manuscript I obtained from Malmesbury Abbey in England, since I had also been assigned to pose as one of the sisters directly under St. Hildegard's authority, I spoke the lingua ignota. So I was able to translate the text And I know why it is so important to the peerless to get a hold of this document. The Book of Noah holds the key to the survival of the peerless. The information contained within it, combined with the last thing I saw the demented Noah do, makes sense to me now. Noah's last action had puzzled me before I read the letter his great-grandfather had written to him. Just before the original language that everyone knew, spoke, and understood was taken away by the enemy, Noah started giving his little carvings to anyone who would take one. 
not to me, not to the peerless, who only saw them as worthless trinkets, but to anyone Noah could persuade to accept one. He gave them one. Protect the stone, he said to those into whose hand he tucked a minuscule pony, giraffe, or dog. The tower will not be finished. The stones will be dispersed. Carry this with you. The people had been scattered, taking Noah's stones and the clues to the original language with them. The information in the book of Noah means the peerless can get the immortality they want, and Noah's rock carvings will help them somehow in this endeavor. Their arrogance made them overlook the little stones, just like they overlook me. Until now. And now... I hold in Brother Joseph's notes proof that the peerless need the Eliud. One more thing they discarded in the past to accomplish their goal. I will start by telling the peerless, I know they're sick. They have begun to disintegrate. Their bodies are rotting. I may even reveal that Gadriel asked me to concoct some scent with which he might mask the fecal odor he had started to emit that I know the antimony they consume, and that my mother had mixed into cosmetics for Nephilim is no longer working to counter the pulling apart of their two natures. Every scrap of information I collected for the peerless should have raised my value in their eyes, but not once did they show me the respect I deserve. True, over time I received enough elixir to even develop wings, but... Why shouldn't I have them? Aren't I actually superior to Nephilim, since I have no problem with disincoherence while their disintegration grows worse? I will tell them. I know they need me more than ever, and that I will give them the manuscript, but only if they regard me as equal with them and stop using me as a mere errand runner. The time has Come. Ah, Samya. The peerless are expecting you. Your eminences, Dr. Grigori. Venerable Gadriel, Samya is here. Samya, you do not bow? No, I do not. Bowing is for the inferior. I stand amongst you as an equal. See, why should I keep my wings hidden in your presence any longer? I now possess the information you seek concerning the Eliud. I understand the Book of Noah and the significance of the votives. But before I give you this information, I demand a reward. The reward I deserve. You dare to demand? You know about the little stones. <laughs> she knows about the old Nearly's little stones. You do not know about the large stones, the Babel stones. As usual, you confuse the insignificant for the important. 
The large stones? You think you deserve to know? To be further rewarded? After your impudence? I suppose she would like more elixir. <laughs> Have you figured out the elixir as well? Nephil blood. <laughs> we would never give you our own blood. It is Eliud blood, the blood of your children. <laughs> uh, what a terrible mother you are to not know it was they and the others like them who have been keeping you alive all this time, who helped you sprout the pathetic wings of which you are so proud. Take her. My lungs, they feel on fire. My wings, my wings must be gone. But I can breathe. I can breathe. Cedar, uh, loam, moss, forsythia, like that a long ago glade where I found that little dead Nethel girl. If I live, I will repay the peerless. What's that? N not a smell, but a, a, a feeling. Pity, compassion. No longer for the Nephilim. Now for the Eliud. Muggy heat blasted us as we exited the jet. Thankfully, it was only a few meters to the Lincoln Navigators waiting for us on the airstrip, but I was still soaked with sweat and my hair was plastered to my head as I got into a car. I noticed the readout on the driver's control panel, 113 degrees Fahrenheit. As we sped toward Dubai, Heat radiated from the sand and asphalt and caused everything near the ground to shift and blur, like the city was built on a foundation of vapor. From the city's center, the Burj Khalifa, our destination, pierced the sky. The tower dwarfed all other buildings, like a sunflower had blossomed in a garden of geraniums. Yet it was more aggressive than any flower, with its sharp angles and edges. What it looked exactly like was the formation Rachel had shown us in the chemistry lab, a stibnite sample with crystal daggers and needles jutting out of a silver base, one sticking out much higher than the rest. Beautiful, isn't it? Rachel had marveled. The most important source of antimony. So here we were. Zooming toward a city of stibnite with an elegant silver needle, glistening like a ray of antimony, thrusting up from its center. His eyes focused on the Burj Caliph. Neef turned his lightest shade of pale yet. Will you be all right? 
I will. I won't look out the windows, and it's not like that thing has an outdoor balcony. Actually, it has three observation decks at floors 124, 125, and 148, but only one outdoor deck. I shot Josh my that's-not-helpful face. It's better that he knows now, don't you think? He can prepare if he knows. At least you can't go up to the top. There's a radio antenna up there, but no observation deck. I'll survive. We're here. Your hotel's located on the 39th floor. That's not so high up. Neath wiped his upper lip with a hanky. We hurried into the building's glass and steel lobby and waited in its hushed coolness for our group to assemble. The professors were conferring with the security man at the front desk. Josh scanned the area out front of the building. He elbowed me in the waist and nodded toward the driveway we had come in from. I spotted it right away. I tapped Alani's shoulder. She put her hand on Neith's arm. Same kind of van we've seen at all our stops, right? Uh Uh-huh. The vehicle drove slowly past without stopping. They must be going around to a loading dock. I wonder if they're picking something up or dropping something off. It's time to find out. Let's meet tonight, as soon as they announce lights out. I'll let Fenton and Aranka know. Dr. Kaleo appeared and gathered us to go up to the Armani Hotel. As we got off the elevator, Delani gestured toward her backpack. My votive is so warm, I can feel it through my bag. Mine, too. Something here is activating it. Something more powerful than our touch. Maybe tonight the mystery gets solved. I hope so. I think... is Allie Daniels. Thank you for listening to Antimony. This podcast was written by Amy Richter and is based on the novel Antimony, published by Whiffenstock. Copyright 2019. The novel is available at whiffenstock.com, amazon.com, and other online booksellers. Music was composed and arranged by Pan Conrad. You've been listening to the voices of the Silver Linings Players, a group of volunteers from all over the world who came together virtually during the COVID-19 pandemic to record this podcast for you. Episode 13 featured, in order of appearance, Lydia Brower as Kaya, Catherine Hilton as Delani, Patrick Gillingham as the flight attendant. Della Wager-Wells as Miss Agoros, Jenny Ovenstone-Smith as Dr. Kaleo, Aya Fuad as Zia, David Merrill as Josh, Sarah Phoenix-Richter as Aranka, Emmett Pro-Richter as Neith, Joel Richter as Finton, Joseph Pagano as the pilot and the driver, Kimber Lee Nussbaum as Samya, Josiah Dykstra as Dr. Grigori, and Thomas Foster as Gadriel. We'll be back soon with episode 14.